Okay, welcome to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. This is Robert. And today we're going to be beginning a episode on Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States. Do you, can you start us off with a bit of context about Coolidge? So um, Coolidge succeeded uh, um, Warren, Warren G. Harding as president. Uh, Harding, as we might recall, ran on a, a ticket of return to normalcy, died on a trip to Alaska uh, well into his presidency. Coolidge, the vice president, took over, basically uh, told everybody he would be a continuation of the Republican Party uh, policies of return to normalcy, which means pro-business, low taxes, even back then. Uh, Coolidge then stood for re-election and was elected in his own right and uh, left office after that term, uh, after the death of one of his sons and um, Herbert Hoover succeeded uh, Coolidge as the president. Um, Coolidge is mostly remembered for his uh, taciturnity. His nickname was Silent Cal. Uh, Ronald Reagan thought very highly of Coolidge. He was his favorite president. Uh, Reagan put a portrait of Coolidge in the Oval Room near his desk. And uh, unlike Reagan, Coolidge was very quiet. At one instance, uh, he was talking to one of the legislative leaders of the uh, Massachusetts Republican uh, uh, legislator in, the Ma- of, in Massachusetts when Coolidge was governor there. And the uh, legislator wanted to know Coolidge's secret for time management. How do you get so much done, governor, as the legislator? And Coolidge's response was, well, your problem is that you talk to them, and that only encourages them. And there are stories about how people would go into Coolidge's office and he'd sit there quietly, not talk, listen to what they had to say, say, we'll look into it, and usher them out of his office. Uh, he, he did have a humorous side. In uh, He was at a party, and a woman came up to him and said, I bet I can get you to say more than two words at this party. To which Coolidge responded, you lose. Hmm. And uh, then was quiet throughout the evening. So he's, he's seen as kind of a uh, embodiment of Yankee dry wit. Although the contemporary humorist Dorothy Parker wrote of him, he had a face that looked like he had been weaned on a pickle. Hmm. So... It's kind of a mixed story as to whether or not he actually had a humorous side to it. What um, does he come from? A uh, can you give us the context of the times when he when he gets into office? Is the is the presidency? Um, were there scandals in Harding's presidency? Was the president was the period? This is post progressivism. So, uh, nineteen twenty election was the first federal election in which women could vote. And it's significant in a, in a way that they elected Warren G. Harding as he 
is often seen as the most handsome president uh, who was elected. Now, lest I be accused of, of condescending towards women, uh, his opponent was a complete non-entity, a uh, very plain man, but also a man of... Who was um, his opponent? Uh, somebody named Davis, some Wall Street lawyer. Okay. And this is hard on the uh, progressive era. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt became president in 1900, served until 1909, uh, Taft continued and institutionalized the progressive policies of, of Wilson. And then, uh, I'm sorry, of, of Roosevelt. And then Wilson succeeded Taft in the election of 1912, 1913. He was inaugurated. And he undertook one of the most self-consciously progressive administrations in American history. Wilson. Wilson. And he was a Democrat? He was a Democrat. So both parties at that point were dominated by their progressive factions. Uh, Wilson also presided over the First World War and the peace settlement that came after it. So the, by the time the 1920 election came along, the country was fairly exhausted. Uh, taxes were a huge issue. The income tax had been instituted. Um, taxes had been raised to fight the First World War. The just shattered economies of Europe needed to be rebuilt, but we're not offering competition for American goods. Argentina had been the main supplier of grains during the First World War as a, as a neutral country, but they really couldn't do it. So American grains and other American agricultural commodities had ready markets in Europe. Uh, Russia had gone through the Bolshevik Revolution, become the Soviet Union, so the uh, exports of grains and meat and other agricultural commodities from the Ukraine and from Russia <laughs> stopped. So for the American people, the 1920s were mostly a period of great prosperity. We tend to remember it as when the Great Depression began, but that was towards the end of the 20s. So uh, Coolidge's uh, term in the early and mid-1920s was a period in which uh, we were enjoying prosperity. Uh, prohibition was in effect, and by the time Coolidge took office, was well into effect. So it was, it was, it was basically the Roaring Twenties. Was Coolidge, socially speaking, on what side of an issue like prohibition? Coolidge was a dry, which means that he favored uh, temperance. Temperance yes, for him or for everybody. Temperance meaning complete uh, abstinence <coughs> from alcoholic beverages, and for everybody that it was uh, essentially sinful to drink. That the uh, spirits robbed your faculties of reason. Um, Coolidge really was a throwback to the Puritan ethos of the early New England colonies. 
Um, he he Is was he like a, John Quincy Adams. He was the son of a minister. Okay. Um, his father was also a, a justice of the peace, so he had a very strong inculcation in law, in religion, in rectitude, and he lived in a, a remote rural part of Vermont where the Puritan ethos lived on. And, and, and Vermont, we have to think, was was very highly influenced by Quebec province, by Quebec in, in, in Canada. Um, a lot of people say that the first 60 miles of America are French. And when you're in northern New England, that's, that's pretty true. So the uh, consciousness that young Coolidge had of his Yankee heritage in uh, French-dominated Vermont was probably very strong. Did what, what? Which presidents would you say are most like Coolidge in their puritanical, uh, puritanical, you know, profile? Certainly the Adams. Both of them. Both of them. Um. It's, it's, it's really hard to think of anybody else who had such a direct link to, to people like Bradford, the, the Puritan governor of the Plymouth Colony, who wrote extensively about the uh, elect of God who were presumably chosen to govern in the New World, in the New Jerusalem. Um, I don't think Coolidge had such a highly articulated view as Bradford, but he certainly belonged to that vein of thought, and that distinguishes him from the Adams. I mean, it was uh, a narrow vein, but a very distinctive vein, very highly New England, self-reliant, taciturn, stoical in the face of adversity, uh, very restrained in the face of prosperity and very, very deep public service ethos. I'll give you a, I'll give you a quote from his uh, days at Amherst College where he graduated cum laude. Um, this is about a professor who was a philosophy professor that influenced him, a congregational mystic and a Neo-Hegelian philosopher uh, school, from the Neo-Hegelian school of philosophy. Coolidge, Coolidge is explaining the remarks, and this is 40 years later. There is a standard of righteousness that might does not make right, that the end does not justify the means, and that expediency as a working principle is bound to fail. The only hope of perfecting human relationships is in accordance with the law of service, under which men are not so solicitous about what they shall get as they are about what they shall give. Yet people are entitled to the rewards of their industry. What they earn is theirs, no matter how small or how great. But the possession of property carries the obligation to use it in a larger service. So that's, that's, there's a lot to that. But that, that's in accord with how you were just describing him. Yes. Um, there's, there's the high degree of respect for private property, which has moved from a liberal humanist perspective 
like in the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which said that property is sacred, into a more ecclesiastical uh, kind of, uh, of uh, adjuration. That, uh, it's part of our duty towards God to protect private property. This is interesting given the neo-Hegelian uh, orientation of that speaker. Hegel, as we recall, was famous for his use of, of dialectic in his philosophical method, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So we can see here where Christianity, a philosophy of deep charity, humility, uh, service, and brotherly love, has been expanded to protect property rights. Very interesting synthesis of ideas there, taken both from the humanism of the Enlightenment and the French Revolution, and from that speaker's uh, parent study of, of Christian scripture. Okay. Now, tell he became a lawyer. Right. What is his domestic life? What is his early days... Or, I mean, you explained a little bit of his early days. What were his, what was his acumen? What was his early life as a lawyer? Did he get married? Where was he living in the country? Was he living in urban? So they lived in central Massachusetts in the Amherst, Northampton area. Uh-huh. So if we think of a triangle uh, with the axes of the triangle being Northampton, Springfield, Mass, Worcester, Mass., we have kind of an idea where, where he lived. He lived in the Connecticut River Valley, uh, downstream from Vermont, where he grew up. He was probably a day's journey by the transportation they had available at the time from his uh, parental home. He married a woman named Florence Henderson. Um, and he basically was an aspiring young lawyer. He was very interested in politics. <laughs> He, he uh, did a lot of work for the city. Um, at some point, he, he, he was the city uh, attorney for the town of Northampton. Uh, Which is where Jonathan Edwards was. Oh, I didn't know that, yeah. but that's interesting. Um, but, but that gave him a steady economic base, and that also gave him a political base. But he doesn't look like at that point you'd think of that, that description... <laughs> And, and those years, it doesn't seem like that's a prime ready person to be president. Um, I don't think the presidency was ever in his horizon, as far as a personal ambition. What were the what? What do you think were his personal ambitions, and what were the what were the um, let's say the ideas that people at this time thought of his ceiling? Let's say. So probably he probably would have thought corporation law is a pretty good, pretty good deal. Insurance settlements, uh, maybe some corporation charters, but mostly the legal work around corporations. Uh, cities are a corporation, so he kind of uh, moved in that direction, and there aren't a lot of national corporations, economic corporations in Northampton, so even though he appears to have been interested in corporation law, it was more civil, civic corporations, civil corporations, uh, municipalities, states, so on like that. And he was very interested in politics. Um, 
even though he was very quiet, he seems to have exuded a certain degree of bonhomie, which made him popular with the sort of people who join clubs, who join political parties, so on like that. He was very well educated. He was cum laude from a good school, so he was clearly intelligent. He probably wanted to uh, be comfortable. Uh, probably by the standards of the time, probably a $10,000 yearly income, uh, which back then was sort of figure that was Dr. Uh, Evil would, would quote with his finger in his mouth. Was this the type of, was this in the Gilded period or after? This is right in that period after the, uh, the big recession in the, in the 1880s mm-hmm. that kind of ended the Gilded Age and brought us into the, uh, into the progressive age. I mean, he clearly recoiled from the progressive era. Uh, interestingly, you know, he viewed Christian service and the protection of property as his forms of activism. Is he like Mike Pence? <laughs> Said less talkative. I think Mike Pence, Mike Pence might be a good comparison to, uh, to Calvin Coolidge. Uh, very traditional values, uh, socially very conservative, fiscally conservative, small very government. conventional in his thinking, mm-hmm. uh, appeals to small-town America, yeah. But they might not have the same personal instincts. Well, Mike Pence was a, a commentator, so, you know, he, he talks for a living. We don't know what he's like in uh, his personal dealings. Okay. And Mike Pence also has a really good voice, so, you know, he... Likes to use it. I mean, uh, the recordings we have of Coolidge always sound kind of squeaky. <laughs> okay. That might have been something to do with the the recordings of the era. It might have. Okay. Now, he becomes a local politician, then moves into the state uh, legis- as a, into being a state legislator. I believe a state senator, yeah. Okay. Nothing. I mean, just no, just a... Good, maybe a competent one, but not a not a not not lighting anybody's uh, you know not not lighting any beacons. Okay, uh, very conservative. I mean, a, a, a four square conservative. A force was Massachusetts force was Massachusetts Republican at the time. Massachusetts, of course, yes. I mean, the North was Republican at this time. And when did it when did it switch from uh, New Deal? Well, pretty much when the Republican Party started getting so conservative, so, the 60s. so around around Landon's uh, period. Landon, <laughs> but there were—I mean, like like um, there were prominent Massachusetts Republicans well into the fifties. Um, uh, two two uh, successive speakers of the House came from Massachusetts: one Republican and then a Democrat. So uh, this is late fifties, early sixties kind of period. So. Uh, but but Mass also he has a very large conservative uh, segment of the population. Okay. Um, all right. So how does he go from the legislative body to lieutenant governor? Um, essentially, the lieutenant governor presides over the state senate. Uh, Coolidge was seen as a, as a a man of the senate, somebody who knew the rules, somebody as I say who is very dependable. Uh, in adhering to the rules, very dependable conservative, 
a Republican administration would want to have a dependable uh, advocate for its uh, policies in the state Senate. Coolidge fit the bill. Everybody liked him. He was energetic. Mm-hmm. He was willing to, to speak around the state. He was energetic? Yeah. Was he yeah. big or small? Uh, he was tall, but I think he was kind of kind of thin. Mm-hmm. I mean, tall like 6'1". Mm-hmm. So then McCall, who was the governor at the time, doesn't run for a fourth term, and Coolidge announces his decision to run for governor. Right. And he was unopposed by the, from the Republican side, so he was popular. Well, it was, you know, it's like the natural succession, right? You know, you're a lieutenant governor, you served your time, now the governor figures it's time for him to move on, it's time for you to move up. Now listen, listen to, okay, so listen to this. Um... So he and his running mate, Channing Cox, a Boston lawyer, ran on the previous administration's record, fiscal, and here are the roots of it, fiscal conservatism, a vague opposition, okay, a vague opposition to prohibition, support for women's suffrage, and support for American involvement in World War I. The issue of the war proved divisive, especially among Irish and German Americans. Coolidge was elected by a margin of only 16,000 votes over his opponent, Richard Long, in the smallest margin victory of any of his statewide campaigns. And then you can move into the Boston police strike. So, Do you want to say anything about the election? So, so, so Channing Cox is an interesting name. I mean, they're both prominent Boston families, Channings and Coxes. So we can see uh, Channing Cox is the scion of the Boston Brahmin class which right there makes the election very divisive. So we kind of see this profile of Coolidge continuing, that he has strong ties and strong acceptability to the propertied classes, but he also appeals to the mercantile class. He also appeals to the comers. He also appeals in, to some degree to the, to the middle class. Mm-hmm. In a Massachusetts, which at that time probably was still pretty Anglo, uh, Coolidge is seen as a counterweight to the growing influence of the Irish and probably also the Italian and Jewish immigrants who were, who were flooding into the Commonwealth at the time. Okay. So we see the classic divisions of American politics in in his candidacy and in in the places he seeks support. So it, it it it's almost like a precursor of our current closely divided electorate, you know, where a few swing voters or a few people of, of, of indiscriminate uh, uh, background but independent political thinking tend to sway the elections. Okay. Now okay. Now Coolidge gets is up to governor, and it looks like he's moved up just one step at a time. No, 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 like uh, meteoric rise. But it's 1918, and soon he's going to be in the in the White House, not as president, but soon he'll be in the White House. What first of all, tell us about the Boston police strike and how it how it brought him onto the national radar. So the, the Boston police strike. Um, this is a very very complicated political question. I mean clearly striking labor issues, so on like that, had a, had a very, very high degree of appeal 
during the progressive era. Uh, the idea of a police strike, the police who in so many other places were, were strike breakers, really captured the uh, imagination of the American people. So it, it gave it a great degree of national attention. You know, it's, it's a real uh, man bites dog kind of story. The police are on strike for higher wages. And to be fair to the police, they, they were poorly paid. But the Boston Police Department, uh, heavily Irish, was also known for, 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 for graft. I mean, policemen basically iced uh, merchants. And when I say they iced them, it means the merchants offered the police favors, gratuities, discounts, whatever, whatever form of uh, recompense they offered in exchange for police protection. This is very widely known. Uh, were, uh, police department was, was very deeply into graft. I mean, certain tavern keepers, certain brothel owners, etc., and so on, iced the police, offered them gratuities or outright bribes in exchange for uh, protection, for leniency, other favors like that. So there was an ethnic aspect to it in that the police were protectors of the Irish. They were one of the major uh, instruments in the rise of the Boston Irish to political power. Uh, the police were underpaid workers. But there was also a degree of graft. And Coolidge was able to simplify the whole matter and make it a, a, a real strong political issue by saying that the police were public servants. They provided an essential public service, and they didn't have the right to strike, that there was no recourse, there was no substitute for the services the police department provided. Therefore, they had to be on the job. They had to be working. So he took a very hard line against the strike. And so he ends up breaking, breaking the strike. Ended up breaking the strike, yeah. Just by, just by holding out, basically. Okay. And this was really, I guess, so in some ways he may have lost some status among organized labor but gained some status among conservatives. Well, he never had any status among organized labor. Okay. And, in, you know, he saw this as, you know, some people might have seen it, oh, you know, you can get a lot of brownie points with labor, you know, back the police, give them some small concessions. But he really was appalled by the by the, the the graft, by the crookedness of the police department, by you know um, providing license for or leniency towards prostitution and other semi legal or semi illegal activities. I mean that really stirred up his Puritan ire. So he and and he he really was interested in, in breaking the power of the police commissioners. Uh, the police hierarchy who, who permitted those activities. Okay. All right. Um, can you go into the Republican National Convention of, of 1920? So the, the, the Republicans were, they did very well in the 1918 midterm. 
And who's nineteen? Who's president in nineteen sixteen? Uh, Wilson. Wilson. Okay. So the Republicans did very well in the nineteen eighteen midterm. I mean, the Democrats had just fought us through the uh, first World War. Um, trying to remember if the election came before or after the armistice. I think it was before the armistice. So the war was was a big issue. The expense of the war was a massive issue because the Republicans uh, campaigned against income tax. They campaigned against the tax increases required to finance the war. Um, And the country at first was divided whether to go into the war. Less divided than, say, over Iraq or over Vietnam or over Korea, but divided in comparison to the Spanish-American War, which was, you know, the first foreign war that we fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was divided very deeply along ethnic lines, which was a first. Um, and how was the divide? So the German-Americans, who were very numerous, the Irish-Americans, who were not so numerous, but who were very concentrated in the cities and had a very pivotal role in national politics, were against it. Uh, The Anglo elites were essentially in favor of it, and the general population were kind of divided. Basically, uh, they didn't want to go to war, but the British propaganda, particularly against the Germans, was was highly effective. I mean, the idea of the rape of Belgium, uh, the continual campaigning against German militarism, the freedom of the seas, which had very very strong redolence. Why would the Why would the Irish? History. Why would the Irish be opposed to it? They hate Britain. Well, they went for independence, but why? Why they just hated Britain? Yeah, I mean, it's just anti-British sentiment. Okay. And was the war seen as West versus Germany, or was the war seen as Britain versus Germany? At, at that time, there was a tradition for uh, debutantes and young American men to take a European cruise. And when they went abroad, of course, they went to London and Paris, probably also places like Dresden and Dusseldorf and some of the other centers of German culture and the centers of Italian culture. And Italy was seen as more decadent. Germany was seen as more crass. France and Britain were seen as the uh, cradles of the American civilization. So among the elites, there was a very, very high degree of Anglophilism and Francophilism. Mm -hmm. Among the common people, they were, at that, at that time in our history, they were very influenced by the elites and tried to imitate them. So there was uh, probably more of a tendency towards Anglophilism or Francophilism. Uh, French was the most commonly studied foreign language. Latin was second. So um, there was a great deal of, of uh, good feeling towards the French. Uh, and a lot of good feeling towards the English. And the, the way the war developed 
Germany was essentially cut off from the United States very early on. So the American banking and commercial interests uh, got more involved with the British and f- with their British and French counterparts, which only be solidified, uh, and and extended enormous credit to the British and French. So a, a British and French uh, defeat would have probably led to the uh, cancellation of all those loans or the default of all those loans. So American business was very very strongly in favor of an American intervention on the side of the French and the British so they could get back their money. their money. Now, Amer- but America generally viewed itself at this time as an isolationist, isolationist country. I wouldn't say that because uh, we were expanding west for sure, mm-hmm. but we were also uh, heavily involved in Panama mm-hmm. uh, in the Caribbean to defend the Panama Canal, the Philippines, uh, in China, I mean, we had a huge, when, when huge was the interest Panama in China. Canal completed? 1904. Okay. Uh, we had just, uh, under Wilson, we had just made major military incursions into Mexico. <laughs> I mean, a huge proportion of the army uh, was sent to Mexico to fight uh, Pancho Villa and, and bring him to justice after he raided Lordsburg, New Mexico. So, uh, the I, I the idea that we were so uh, isolationist at, at that point probably isn't true. Okay. Now, Warren G. Harding was not the was not a top of the ballot first ballot pick for nineteen twenty. Well, it was real obvious to the Republicans they were going to win. They were going to win nineteen twenty. I mean, they were going to win, right? I because mean, of the backlash, Wilson was a the sort of person who might have gone against the. Th- three-term, anti-three-term precedents that Washington had set. And Wilson, motivated by the mission of starting the League of Nations right. and passing the Versailles. Which he was a hero for. Would, would, would very likely have gone against the three-term precedent to, to keep See it through. pushing against the Senate for... Uh, um, the ratification of the League of Nations. But he had a stroke and was essentially crippled. What year did he have the stroke? 1919. Okay. So, and it was kept secret. So essentially... Oh, that's not the first time that's happened. His wife and his doctor were conducting the presidency. Uh, there were secret meetings at the White House. His wife would sit outside the president's bedroom, the doctor would be inside the president's bedroom. The doctor reportedly was the intermediary between the wife who would tell the doctor what the interlocutors were saying. The doctor would then express it to the president in terms that he could understand, receive the president's response, tell the wife, and the wife would then tell. Now, but... Did you know, it was a fraudulent setup. I mean, Wilson was paralyzed. He wasn't talking to anybody. How long did it go on for? Uh, basically two years. Two years? Yeah. And he didn't make public appearances? Well, he was flat on his back. And what, would, what was the press saying about it? They were going along with it. I mean, essentially, you know, the president is functioning. The president is working uh, very diligently. 
through his intermediaries. I mean, Jefferson never came out of the White House. Nobody ever saw him. He worked through Madison Monroe. Um, it, it just, it just at that so time. So it's not like a period now where you have to see the president. No, at that time, politicians were much more reticent. They were much more staged in the way they appeared in public. So it, it, it they were able, uh, based on the convention of the time, to pull it off. Now, who was Wilson popular with, and who was he unpopular with? He is a southerner, so he was popular with the Democrats. Uh, he was probably fairly popular with the progressives, but the progressives by this time had pretty well run their course. Um, they didn't really have another champion. I mean, Roosevelt was ruined. He went to South America and contracted a fever, which broke his health. Uh, Wilson, as they said, was paralyzed. There really wasn't at this point a progressive leader to rally the troops, even if there had been, Wilson still had the political clout to crush him. Um, Debs was still in prison. <laughs> he was arrested for subversion. Uh, so the socialists were, were pretty well silenced and, and were being persecuted by the United States Department of Justice. So the time was really ripe for a uh, conservative uh, resurgence. And there were a number of Republicans, but none of them really had national appeal. Uh, Harding was highly acceptable. He was a senator. From Ohio. uh, From Ohio, which was a key state. He was a newspaper publisher. He was seen as somebody who who could communicate well to the public. He was not objectionable. He was not strong. There was nobody who thought, yeah, you know, I can't work with him. He's got these principles that are going to get in my way. So he was a good compromise candidate. The different factions thought, you know, we're, we're going to get ours. That's why it took 10 ballots to get Right. Because the other, the other ones that were possible potential nominees needed, each had kind of a, a each had to be black disqualified. eye about them. Right. Okay. Now, also... Um, Coolidge is not the first pick for for vice president. Again, it was the same the same sort of a thing. You know, we're we're looking for somebody who has some kind of appeal, something to offer. They recognized uh, New England needed to have recognition. Let uh, me read. Let me read. Let me just read you this, and then I would like you to comment on it, and then um, we'll go. We'll stop this episode here and we'll start the next episode with the election and go into how um, Coolidge becomes president, but just comment on this. All right. So this is after 10 ballots, the Republican bosses and the delegates settled on Warren G. Harding of Ohio. When the time came to select the vice president nominee, the bosses also made and announced the decision on whom they wanted Senator Irvine Lenroot of Wisconsin and then prematurely departed after his name was put forth, relying on the rank and file to confirm their decision. A delegate from Oregon, Wallace McCammond, having read Have Faith in Massachusetts, proposed Coolidge for vice president instead. The suggestion caught on quickly with the masses, starving for an act of independence from the absent bosses, and Coolidge was unexpectedly nominated. Does that sound right to you? Well, that's... You know, that was written by somebody who was there, so I'm not going to argue with an eyewitness. But, I, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's just very interesting how the bosses feared we got this thing wrapped up. Let's go home. You know, 
the bimbos are waiting in the back, you know, let's go get to it. Yeah. And uh, they left the convention to its own devices and they got, they got the, it, it, it came back at them. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it just shows, you know, I mean, this is the sort of like, uh, if I can make the uh, kind of an, uh, not a, a completely apt analogy, but this is kind of what happened with the Ocasio, uh, what's Cortez. her, Cortez election, you know, the, uh, Crowley figured he had everything pretty well wrapped up, didn't make public appen- uh, appearances, left it to his uh, constituents who he figured would understand his, his stature in Washington, his dedication to service in, in the community, and a uh, person on the floor with a compelling message was able to thwart the bosses and show the independence of the rank and file. Mm. All right. So next episode, we'll let me say one more thing about that. Um, and, and this would also kind of establish Coolidge as uh, a hero among the Republican rank and file. Okay. You know, this is the one who's free of the bosses. This is the one who we chose. This is this is our guy. Right. All right. All right. So we'll go into the his term as vice president. The ele- well, we'll look a little bit at Harding's election. How Vice President, uh, we'll do quick, and then we'll move into our next episode with Coolidge's uh, term and, and an assessment of him as president. So thank you for listening to the Presidential Podcast. The profiles, this is Philip. And this is Robert. And have a good day. And thank you.